Well, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians 6, and the fellows have some Bibles, so they're going to make their way back down the aisles. Get their attention if you need a Bible. It is marked to that passage in Ephesians 6, which is part of the series we've been going through for several months, the title of which is on the screen, Your Place in God's Plan. We are in the sixth and final chapter of the book of Ephesians. So we'll be finishing it over the next uh, several weeks. Before we get into the message, I wanted to say a couple of uh, words of thanks. One is for that uh, card that you had inserted in your program, and as I said, will be for the next four weeks, for our Third and Goal Ministry Center Fund. And that is the handiwork of our very own graphics designer, Jim Pantelli, did that for us and uh, printed those up for us. So I wanted to publicly thank Jim for his his ministry in that regard, not only for that, but he does all sorts of stuff like that uh, for us. And uh, also, today when you came in, did you guys see the crime scene tape out there, uh, out in the parking lot? Well, that's because there is a basketball tournament going on, and we're told there are going to be 700 participants or 900, something something crazy. So our guys got here very early. Uh, We have a resident policeman who has crime scene tape, (laughs) so... He roped that off. They have the, the cones out there, and I suppose we're directing you when you came in as they were for us when we came in at about 9 o'clock. And there were a bunch of guys out there uh, doing that and braving the cold, and so thank you guys for coming early and for making it convenient for us to park. Otherwise, it would be mayhem, and we have had that happen in the past, and our guys have been determined that that's not going to happen if we can help it. I've told you in the past that before... I became a full-time pastor for this church in the summer of 06 that I had to actually work for a living. And I worked as a computer consultant for over 20 years. There were times when my place of employment would get a new manager who would come in all fired up about the things we were going to do and how he or she, with our help, were going to change the world And they couldn't wait to lay out the plan to us. And they would lay out the plan. And those of us who had been there uh, for some time and knew a bit about our staff and its limitations, both in numbers and sometimes in skills, we would say to ourselves, if not to that new manager, you know, that's impossible. Sometimes it was indeed impossible. There were other times where we were able, actually able to, to get it done much to our surprise. We thought we could not, but turned out we could. Some of you remember the old Mission Impossible episodes that would start out with the tape recording. I said they were old. Tape recording. Giving the instructions to Peter Graves and his crew before Peter Graves was a Geico spokesman. And it would lay out this situation that needed to be solved, and for sure it sounded impossible, but... By the end of the episode, they were able to get it done. We sometimes laugh at the idealism of youth, sometimes our own youth when we look back, because we're going to change the world and we're going to bring about world peace and solve world hunger. Now suppose that God told you of a plan to transform the world one person at a time, And to do so by re-engineering the birth process. 
and producing a, a different, better humanity. And this brave new world that God is going to bring about does not happen by taking a pill or manipulating DNA or by cloning, but rather person to person. And God says, I'm going to assign some of those persons to you. You are going to be my primary agent of transformation in the lives of those that I'm going to entrust to you. Wow. That seems impossible, doesn't it? How is that going to get done? And as a matter of fact, that one really is impossible. That's impossible for you. It's impossible for me. But it is the very thing that God has assigned to us to be his primary agents in the lives of others and the transformation that he is bringing about in them. That transformation of the birth process is that re-engineering of the birth process is what the Bible calls being born again, the new birth. And the means by which that is going to happen is the gospel spoken and the gospel lived out. And if you're a parent, God has assigned you a mission field for that to happen. For you to be his primary agent of transformative change in the lives of those children that he's entrusted to you. What an awesome task. What an impossible task. But what's impossible for men is possible with God. And God gives us very direct instructions about how he wants, no, how he demands that we participate in his change process in the lives of those that he's entrusted to us our children. But I trust that you sense, even in my opening words, as I do, that we can't do this. That we need God's help. Let's ask God to help us. And then let's see what God tells us about what He demands from us as His change agents in the lives of our children. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for the convicting truth of your word, that you have chosen to use frail and sinful and needy people like us to do the work that you are carrying out in your world, and not just your world out there, but your world in this room, your world in the four walls of our homes. That this is not just theory now, but it is very concrete. It is very practical. It is very applicable because we all have our homes. We all have those that are in our circles of influence and particularly those of us to whom you've entrusted precious children. So Lord, help us in our few moments today to focus our minds on the awesome tasks that you've assigned, ultimately impossible for us but possible through you and your grace given in the gospel. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, it's been a few weeks since we have been in the book of Ephesians together. I want to just take a few moments to remind you of how chapter 6, and then we're going to hone in on verse 4 and its instructions for us as parents. But 
how that fits into the overall theme of what this book is communicating. It's divided into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 3 tell us about God's grand plan going back to eternity past when he determined that he was going to work in his world to call some out of the world and to himself, and he was going to change them through the gospel. And he was going to give them his, his Holy Spirit. And he was going to use them them to be his agents of change in his world. Chapters 1 through 3 tell us about God's plan and our, his plan. And now, beginning in chapter 4, we begin to see our place in God's plan, and thus the title of the series. And chapter 4 and verse 1 tells us now, Paul who wrote it says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, the then is, based upon all that I've said in chapters 1 through 3, now because of that, I, as one who is sold out to carrying out this work that God has assigned to me, I am calling you to do likewise as a prisoner for the Lord then. I urge you, says verse 1 of chapter 4, to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And then beginning in chapter 4, all the way to the end of the book, we're given a description practically of what that calling looks like. Verse 22 of chapter 4 tells us that we are to become, we're becoming like God. God's image in His likeness, says verse 24, in holiness and righteousness. So as we participate in this work that God is doing in His world, His plan for us is that we are regularly, daily, weekly, yearly transformed into the image of God, the purpose for which we were originally created. But of course, it's a broken world that needs to be redeemed. And God tells us, you're going to be my agents of seeing that transformation take place in the lives of others. And so in the way you talk and in the way you behave, beginning in verse 25 of chapter 4, We're told about the way we will use our minds and the attitudes we'll display and the way we'll use our words and the behaviors that we will engage in. And then when we come to chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, we're told, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Place yourself under. Submit to the needs of others, placing them before yourself so that you are displaying Christ's likeness now in your various relationships. And what are those relationships? Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. Then we're told in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And then beginning in chapter 6, we begin to see relationships not only between husband and wife now, but submission, placing ourselves under the needs of those that God has placed in our network, in the home regarding children and parents. Verse 1, chapter 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And we saw that in our time uh, together a few weeks ago. That's why the outline that's inserted in your program is partially filled in because we covered the first few points of of that outline. But then verse 4 tells us, fathers, and speaking to the fathers, also speaking to the mothers as we pointed out three weeks ago, fathers do not exasperate your children, but instead bring them up in the discipline and the instruction 
of the Lord. And we're going to see together that God is using us then as his primary agents of change in the lives of the children that he's entrusted to us. We're going to fill in the rest of that outline looking at the last part of verse 4 together. But you see that I say in the outline that children, number one, have good reasons to obey their parents. And we looked at those three weeks ago. If you missed that message and you want to get caught up, I encourage you to listen online. All of our messages are under the media tab at our, our website. And then secondly, we saw that parents have good reason to raise their children. We saw that the raising of these children that have been entrusted to us is necessary. It's necessary because children are vulnerable. They cannot be left to themselves. They will not raise themselves. I know that sounds obvious, but so many people think that the inherent goodness of, peop- of children will just flourish if you will just let them be. <laughs> really? <laughs> Anybody else here seen enough flourishing? Anybody else had enough expression? Anyway, they're vulnerable. It doesn't, it doesn't just, just happen. And they need to be raised. It's necessary because children are not only vulnerable if left to themselves, but they are, they are sinful as well. And in this process, verse 4, fathers and mothers are commanded, as you do this, do not exasperate your children. We saw three weeks ago that that means to take the air out of them, take the wind out of their sails. That if we parent in a way that is inconsistent, in a way that is angry, in a way that can, in the words of Colossians chapter 3, says, fathers, not do not exasperate, it says, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. So this parenting task and how we go about it and model it in front of our children is extremely important and will have far-reaching effects. It's necessary because children are vulnerable and because they they are sinful. In fact, the notion that you can just let a child express his or herself and sort of go their own way, and you'll just kind of keep them within certain parameters and it'll all turn out okay. Here's what the wisdom of Proverbs says. A child left to himself disgraces his mother. If left alone, if if parents are passive, this is what happens. And so we have to be intentional and active And that's why the command now in verse 4 that says instead now of taking the wind out of their sails or embittering them, instead of that now, bring them up. And that phrase, bring them up, is written in the original language of your New Testament, Greek, in what is called the active voice. There's the passive voice, but there's the active voice. And this is written, bring them up in the active voice, meaning it must be active and intentional on the part of parents. Further, it's written in the imperative mood. That means it's a command. This is not optional for us. God Almighty says, I have given you these children as a heritage from me, Psalm 127. You do not own them. They belong to me. I've entrusted them to you for my purposes, and you must bring them up. And it's written in the present tense, which signifies that it's an ongoing activity. It's not something we do for a few years, not something we do for a few months after we were buzzed up because we took the parenting class, but we do for the entirety of the time that they are entrusted to our care. Bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And in your outline, 
Point B. Parents have good reason to raise their children. They should do so because it's necessary, but also because, and thanks be to God, because it is possible. We should do so because it's not only necessary, but what seems impossible is possible with God. Now, how so? Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction, but notice the last phrase, of the Lord. And as we begin to break down what it means to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, from the outset, I want to ask you parents to consider whether or not the basis, the authoritative basis for how you have determined to parent your children is of the Lord or of the world. It is not bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the world. It's of the Lord. And I need to ask that of a Bible-believing and Bible-teaching church like this because it is so easy to imbibe the false teaching of the world. And to find ourselves engaging in this most important task of rearing our children and doing so by the principles of a secular and God-hating world. Parents, bring them up in the nurture the discipline, the instruction of the Lord. So many of us have bought into so many other authorities that for some of us, God's commands have become just good advice. Do you understand, friends, that what we have read is the command of Almighty God? And because we are called then to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, then we look to the Lord for how this is to happen and for what our objective is in carrying out this parenting task. We're going to see that it requires indeed discipline, as the passage says. We'll see what that looks like from a scriptural perspective. But behind all that we're to be doing as parents on behalf of the Lord, for the Lord, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, behind all of that, is for us to be used as God's agents to reach the precious heart of that child. God has called you to be His agent to reach the heart of that child. Do you see why Paul says, <laughs> don't exasperate? Don't embitter. I'm calling you to reach their heart. You say, how, how can I reach their heart? Remember, it's impossible for you. But it's possible with God using you as his agent in the life of that child. Now, why reaching the heart of that child? Not behavior, behaviorism. Not simply external conformity. Not as we will see when we talk about discipline, trying to beat it out of them, for heaven's sake. But reaching their heart for Jesus. Shepherding their heart, as one helpful author, Ted Tripp, says. Shepherding your child's heart in a book that I recommend to you. Why the heart? 
Proverbs says above all else. Guard your heart. For it, the heart, is the wellspring of life. You see, friends, if the heart is cultivated, the behavior will follow because the heart is the wellspring of life. Jesus said this in other ways. When he walked the earth, he said in Mark 7, from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside. Jesus said as well, the good man brings good things out of the good that's stored up in his heart. The evil man, evil things out of the evil stored up. Out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. And so this instruction and this discipline is to be of the Lord. It's to be sourced in the Lord. It is to be for the purpose of the Lord. Not in secular philosophy, not in the world. Not using other sources as the basis of our parenting philosophy. Not even the things we often say like, you know, my daddy always taught me. Now, your daddy may have taught you good. Now, I'm backing up, backing up. Anybody know what that is? That was a YouTube sensation, I thought. Wasn't it, Annie? You told me it was. I guess not. <laughs> you had to be there. But sometimes we'll say, my daddy taught me, or my parents taught me. Now, if your parents taught you what God says, thank God. But the mere fact that your parents taught it to you doesn't make it true. And so the idea that, you know, my old man or my parents taught me such and such, that still needs to be evaluated, does it not? By the standard of the Word of God. When we do this, when we determine to raise our parents, in the, raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, here's what it will do. It will yield confidence for you as a parent that what I am doing is right, even if it's hard. I'm convinced that this is one of the reasons many parents don't do it. It is hard. And when it gets hard, you then question yourself. And you look around you and you see the world doing it differently. You see the world telling you not directly, don't do the things that God says for you to do with those children. And you begin to question yourself. You must be convinced that what you are doing and how you are doing it is of the Lord, sourced in the Lord, so that you have this confidence rather than a tentativeness that I see so often in many parents. As we try to then be God's agent of reaching their hearts, we teach them about God. We teach them about their need for God. About their dependence upon the grace of God. And we do that, parents, in part, by showing them our need for God. And our dependence on the grace of God. It means we have to be willing to admit our own struggles. My girls and I were coming home Friday night from a basketball game in Southfield. And as we came home south on Telegraph, we passed a building 
<clears throat> Telegraph and Seven Mile, that 25 years ago was a ram's horn. How do I know this? Because my wife and I went into that ram's horn one Friday night 25 years ago. Now, why were we at Telegraph and Seven Mile for a ram's horn? Well, it's because we had been in a really big argument that lasted like three and a half hours. And we had driven around for three and a half hours on a Friday evening, getting hungrier and hungrier, and more and more hypoglycemic, both of us, more and more irritable. And we finally found ourselves way out there, and there's a ram's horn, and we pull in and we finally eat. And I told the girls, that building over there that's now a liquor store, 25 years ago that was a ram's horn. And your mother and I went in there after driving around for three and a half hours, irritated at each other, got some food in our system, and then we had a discussion that you, some of you have heard me mention in the parenting and marriage classes that I've taught. We both consider it a, a transformative discussion that night, that Friday night in that ram's horn 25 years ago. Because in the first couple of years of our marriage, we began to see small cracks widen. And the potential for us to go separate ways. We would have never left each other, I don't think. Quite confident. But you can be married and go separate ways, right? We had a discussion about the way things were going. And I remember saying to Kim, we've both been raised in what God says. When are we going to begin doing what God says? And Kim said, that's what I want. And from that day forward for 25 years, we've tried to work on making our relationship in our home what God says. Now that was an act of God's grace in the lives of us, not because we were good. We could have easily been another statistic, but a gracious and good God reached down on a Friday night 25 years ago and showed us what we needed to do. My girls need to know that. They need to know that what they see in us now could have been dramatically different if not for the goodness and grace of our God. We shepherd their hearts to lead them to Jesus by showing them that their hearts are weak and sinful, as are their parents. And we need Him every moment of every day and be willing to say to them, this is how vulnerable I am. This is the thing, these are some of the things that I have done wrong that our gracious God has spared me from the consequences of. My dear wife, and then I'll get off of our family for a minute. My dear wife has a habit of when our girls leave for school during the day, she'll poke her head out the door, the side doors, we're leaving the garage, we'll roll down the window. And she'll say, girls, pray and ask God.
to help you today. Every moment of every day, with whatever you have going on, girls, you need the Lord. And your mom and dad need the Lord. We're shepherding their hearts to lead them to Jesus. Now, how does God say to do this in verse 4? They are to be brought up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, what is this discipline and instruction? And I say in your outline, it is possible to raise these children because children can be disciplined. The NIV says the training and instruction of the Lord. The word that's translated training is the word that's translated elsewhere in your New Testament discipline. So discipline and instruction of the Lord, training and instruction of the Lord. And I want you to notice that the discipline, the training, is before the instruction. Do you find that interesting? The discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Listen, parents, whether the world likes it or not, and the world doesn't like it, and whether we find it easy or not, and it ain't easy, God says we train and we discipline our children. We must train and discipline our children. Proverbs tells us, he who spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is careful to discipline him. The passage that we saw earlier about a child left to himself who disgraces his mother, here's how it actually begins. The rod of correction imparts wisdom. But a child left to himself disgraces his mother. You say, how can it be love to discipline someone, to, to correct someone even by spanking? How can that be loving? Well, here's how. <laughs> because our God who is love does it. That's how. I know the world doesn't get that, but the Bible says that. How do I know it? Because here's what God's Word says. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Same word. Training, discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone that he accepts as a son. And so, yes, we spanked our children when they were little. Arrest me. Because God says to do that. And so we did it. Never in anger. Let me take that back. It should never be done in anger. And when it was done in anger, I sinned. Or Kim sinned. And we had to go to our girls and show our need for God's grace by saying, I sinned by disciplining you in anger. It should never be done in anger. There are many good resources on how to engage in corporal discipline for our children. One is, some of you are familiar with, Don't Make Me Count to Three, by Ginger Plowman. I would recommend that to you. And those of you that are horrified because you have imbibed too long in the world's philosophy at the idea that God would say to spank your children, 
Let me simply say that abuse is abhorrent to our God. Oh my. To take these gifts that God has given and to abuse the authority that he's entrusted to us is heinous to our God. It should be heinous to us. And abuse comes, though, friends, from the idolatry of parenting. Do you know what I mean when I say the idolatry of parenting? I am determined these kids are going to turn out right. Even if, as I said earlier, I have to, I have to beat it out of them. Abuse occurs when it's more about the parent than it is about the child. And so I tell you, dear parents, as we struggle together to be conduits of God's grace into the hearts of our children, I tell you this, that you must hold your parenting with a loose grip. You cannot and you must not demand of God that it turn out the way you want. I don't have the guarantee for how it turns out with our girls. I have God's promise in Proverbs 22, 6, you train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, generally speaking, that's what a proverb is, he will not depart from it. We trust that. We cling to that. We pray for that. But I don't have that guarantee. And I cannot demand that of God. And I cannot clinch that with my fist and say, I'm going to make this happen. It's when we take that idolatrous approach to parenting that we abuse the authority that we've been given. Now, how do we mesh this going after the heart of the child on behalf of the Lord, being used as his agent to capture the heart of that child, with now this corporal discipline? Well, it is this, friends. Behavior reveals the heart. And we are saying when we're willing to do this hard thing in the lives of our children, I love you enough to do what is hard for me. And it ought to be hard for you. And it was hard for me and it was hard for my wife. We don't enjoy this. And we make clear to our children we are not punishing you for sin. God is the one who punishes for sin. And I want you to know, dear child, thanks be to God, he has punished sin in Jesus. So I'm not punishing for sin. What I'm doing is I'm correcting you. I'm training you. I'm giving you instruction with teeth in it is what the training and discipline, the paideia is in verse 4. I'm giving you this so that you will not have to experience the consequences of sin. I want to teach you to hate sin and thus to avoid its consequences. And friends, failure in this discipline is one of the ways in which we exasperate our children. Failure in discipline is one of the ways we exasperate our children. Jay Adams, in another book that I recommend to you, Christian Living in the Home, says that there are two ways to exasperate our children through the incorrect approach to discipline. One is to under-discipline. The other is to over-discipline. And then he gives a number of ways in which we can under- and over-discipline. I'd like to share those, some of those with you. We under-discipline when we are inconsistent in our discipline of our children. 
So when we tell a child that there will be a particular consequence for a particular behavior, and we follow through on that one day, the next day or the next week they do that same thing, but we're too tired, let's say it honestly, we're too lazy to then follow through. And so we're inconsistent. It's hard work to enforce these rules for the sake of our children's own good. And so we do so sometimes, but not all the time. Here's another way to under-discipline. It won't sound like under-discipline. It'll sound like over-discipline, but stay with me. Another way to under-discipline is to have too many rules. As I said, that seems like over-discipline, but when we make too many and we can't enforce them, guess what we end up doing? <laughs> Becoming inconsistent. And so we'll do it sometimes. Perhaps we'll really turn it on like when people are watching. Or when I'm really going to be embarrassed by your behavior. Or when I'm at church and I know the pat what the pastor preached the week before. And I want him to think we do this like Monday through Saturday. And that kid will see hypocrisy and incon inconsistency. Hear this. It's better to have one rule properly enforced than 25 rules that you can never follow up on. Sometimes we make up these rules on the fly. That's why we have so many of them. So in the heat of action in the family, something goes wrong that we don't think should happen, and so there, should be, there needs to be a law against that, right? So we take the there ought to be a law approach to everything. And so we make up a, a rule. From now on, and here it is. I see churches that do this. Everything that can go wrong in a church requires a rule. And there are signs throughout the building. Do not play on church grounds. That'd be horrible to have kids coming to your church campus, wouldn't it? Please pull door shut. Take one per family. No coffee in sanctuary. No flash photography in the auditorium. No strollers. No, no, no. Signs everywhere. You say, we don't have that many signs around here. We don't own the place. But I'm just warning you, those of you that are, have a rule fetish, it'll all come out when we get our own building. And you will have the temptation to want a sign everywhere. And I'm letting you know now that I agree with the words of those great theologians, the five-man electrical band, who said, as Jim Sternberg is singing up here, sign, sign, everywhere a sign. Blocking up the scenery, breaking my mind. Do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? And so there are too many rules. And we often do that because we make them up on the flyer. We're inconsistent. This exasperates our children in our under-discipline. Or we give up too easily. So we start out and it just ain't getting better as quickly as I want it to. I, you know, I heard you, Pastor. I read what God says. It doesn't work. Uh, what God says doesn't work. Look, what Ken says a lot of times doesn't work. What God says works, okay? And so we expect results overnight. It takes years. Years. People look at a child who's cooperative and they say, now if my child had that personality, 
We've actually had people say that about our girls. And we go, really? Where were you for all of those years? Years when it was, it was really hard. Often despite the personality. It is true that we come into this world with different personalities and some are just more naturally compliant. Others are not. We're always needing to deal with the heart, friends, and use God's methodology, whatever the personality. And even those who appear to be cooperative because they follow the rules externally still have sin issues of the heart, right? This is the last book I'm recommending today. It's Grace for the Good Girl by Emily Freeman. Grace for the Good Girl. The young person whose personality is to cooperate. But make no mistake, that young person has a sinful heart just like the one who questions everything. God tells us what he expects of us and then he carries out the consequences that he has prescribed. And that's what we as parents must do with our children. God did that in Eden, did he not? Here are the, here's the situation. Here are your boundaries, Adam and Eve. And in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did he not do the same thing in the book of Deuteronomy? In preparing his people to enter the promised land, he told them very specifically what they needed to do. And he told them what failure to do that would bring. He told them what blessings doing it would bring. We are to rear our children in the discipline, the training, the paideia of the Lord. And if you have not been doing that with your child or with your children, friends, you must begin. And here's my recommendation to you that you sit your child or children down and you confess to them the sin of disobedience by not following the instructions that God has given. You let them know how grateful you are for the grace that is ours in Jesus, for your own forgiveness. And you let them know that for the glory of God and for your children's own good, we're going to begin doing what God says with His help. I encourage you to talk to people who've done it. I encourage you to read some of the resources that I've given so that you can be used as God's agent to reach the heart of that child. You do it in the training of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, and you're also going to do it, as we'll see, in the instruction of the Lord. But as we discipline our children, we can under-discipline them, but let me give you just quickly a few ways we can over-discipline them. You see, it's not just how many rules we have. But it's how we view our authority and how we view the offenses that our, our children commit. If we enjoy our position and our authority, we will flaunt it. We've all seen people like that, right? Well, you put a uniform on a guy, right? Or some boss who just loves everybody knowing what his title is and bossing other people around. You can do that as a parent. But see, we, we are to be under Christ enjoying this position only because of the privilege that it is to be used as his instrument in the life of this child. Not for self-aggrandizement. Not because of my title and being able to throw my weight around, as it were, to people who are more vulnerable. If you enjoy the authority and the title and the position, you'll flaunt it. 
1 John 5, 3 says, God's commands are not grievous. So why should our commands be grievous? We over-discipline then when we issue punishments that don't fit the crime. When we use a sledgehammer, as it were, for a thumbtack. When we fail to distinguish things that are really different. I'll give you an example. Backtalk or giving your parents lip disrespectfully is something that needs to be corrected. And needs to be corrected now. And every time, by the way. That needs to be corrected. But that is not the same as a child who has an inquisitive mind who asks why. Can you explain this to me? Now, you may not have time to explain, in which case you tell the child, I don't have time to explain. Do it, we'll talk later. And then they need to do it, and we'll talk later. But it's not necessarily backtalk to simply have a child whose brain functions in a way that they are more inquisitive than their more compliant sibling, perhaps. We need to differentiate between what one author calls swing issues and flame issues. A swing issue is this. A swing issue is when you have your child who's just barely toddling and they see a swing and perhaps they've seen that swing for six months and they dine to get on it and there has to come a time where you're going to let that kid get on the swing. And you know as a parent, particularly you mothers, that there's a possibility that the kid's going to fall off the swing. Just like when they learn to ride a bike, they're going to fall, they're going to get scraped, and they're going to get hurt, and you don't want that to happen, so you've decided they're going to be 15 before they learn how to swing. So you have all kinds of rules to keep that kid from getting on a swing. You over-discipline. Those are swing issues. There's all kinds of those. And then there are flame issues. You tell a child, you don't go next to the stove because that will harm you. And you insist on that happening. And you make sure that you have discipline with teeth in it so it does not happen. There's the swing issue where something might happen. There's the flame issue where it will happen. And we need to be able to differentiate between those. And one final way in which we over-discipline and thus exasperate our children. Just saying no to everything. No, you don't need that. Well, I know. I mean, how, how many of us need a McFlurry? <laughs> okay, James needs one. <laughs> I'm going to make a sign for you that says you don't need a McFlurry, all right? All kinds of stuff that we engage in that we don't need that a gracious God allows us because we want. And we need to teach our children the grace of God in giving us things not just that we need, but even beyond what we need. We don't say no to everything. We obviously don't say yes to everything either. Children are to be disciplined. They can be disciplined. And children can be taught. Now, the two guys who filled in while I was gone, I'm told, well, Dr. Combs finished at like 1035 last week, so he's never preaching here again. 
And then the guy the week before did the same thing. And here I am at 10.50, and we still have a point to go. But this point doesn't take as long. So try to stay awake as we look at the fact that children can not only be disciplined, but they can be taught. The word that is translated instruction is the Greek word nutheteo, nuthetic. This word is translated warn in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. It's translated counsel in some translations in Romans chapter 15 and verse 14. It's a word used throughout your New Testament and a summary of what it means is this. It is a loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Nuthateo, or this instruction that's spoken of in verse 4, is a loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Now, why would our children need to be confronted with truth? (laughs) Because they naturally are going to go the wrong way. They naturally need to be warned instructed about the right path and the consequences of going the wrong path. Training and discipline is this instruction and the teeth that go with it. And now this is the verbal instruction that we give to our children. Warning them about the wrong path. Instructing them about the blessings of the right path. And God tells us how to do this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, what do I instruct them? What do I tell them about? What do I warn them about? I tell them about the God who made them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And dear child, you were made for this God. You were made for this God to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. This is what you were made for, but what you were made for is not natural to you. It's not natural to me. It is now supernatural for this love to be instilled within us. And so this good God now has given us commands that show us what it looks like to incline our hearts toward Him. And so he goes on to say, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them. Engrave them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Do you see that this is somebody who has this with them everywhere they go? And it's not an artificial thing for them to sit down and say, okay, pastor said we should do family devotions. Everybody sit down and open your Bibles around the dinner table. Let's get that out of the way for 15 minutes and then get back to life. Really. You're carrying this around in your heart everywhere you go. And you're seizing opportunity to speak with your children at home, along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Teachable moments for our children to see the grace of God operative in our lives, to see the sinfulness of mankind operative in the world, teaching them and showing them 
practically, as you go through life, the truth of God's Word and the preciousness of God's Word and the necessity of His grace given in Jesus. goes on to tell us that we don't just do that sometimes. We do it all the time, and we have to do it again and again. Be reminded. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, if you want a sign, here are good signs to make. Here are good post-it notes to make. I said I'd give, I was done with illustrations from our family. This is the last one. Kimmy does this all the time. She is the mad list maker. The girl's been making lists since we were dating. I remember the first set of lists she made when we were married. She had these lists with budgets, numbers. And they were all designed to calculate the time when she could quit work. The list would be called that. When I can quit work. And she would have a list of all the stuff we could pay off and then she could quit work. And we worked toward that. She's not only a list maker, she's a little sign maker. Her signs have verses on them. And she leaves them around the house. It's an effort to do this very thing. To remind us of what God says. And the goodness of our God and our blessed responsibilities to Him. If we do this, friends, take and accept the mission impossible to be God's agent to reach the heart of our children. A good God is inclined to bless the faithfulness of His people in the hearts of our children. And when we do this, children obey your parents in the Lord, verse 1. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Bring them up in the in the discipline, the training and instruction of the Lord. When we do this, take home truth at the bottom of your outline. Both children and parents reflect Christ when they fulfill the roles that He's assigned. We're going to pray and be finished. God has blessed this church with young families and senior families and in between. We've got little kids running all over this place. We've got little kids right now in another zip code in this building being taught the truths of God's Word. Thank God for those children. One of the reasons that I'm excited about us getting a ministry center is it will enhance our ministry overall in particular to our children. And we will have a children's center there, as those of you who went on the tour saw. But why is that so important? Because God has entrusted these children to us as families and as a church family. And friends, would you not love it if God allows us 15 and 20 years together? And we see these young people reared in the nurture and admonition of the Lord the training and instruction of the Lord. And we see these children grow up to have Jesus as their Savior and Lord and to see Jesus as the most important thing in this world. They've learned how to think and they've learned how to see what God provides over against the allurements of the world. They've rejected the world and said, give me Jesus. How precious would that be? I am telling you that's what I not only want for my family, that's what I want for your family. 
That's what we as a church, a family of families, want and desire for each other. I ask you, friend, I beg you, I urge you, put into practice the things that we have talked about from God's Word. And let's watch, watch our gracious God do His work in the hearts of our children. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we thank you for the conviction, but the instruction that we find in your word. Lord, I know how I have failed. I know how I am frail. I know how I am sinfully weak. In the responsibilities that you have assigned to me and to Kimmy, and to all the other parents that are represented here, and the grandparents, none of us is equal to this task. But Lord, we do so desire to see your work accomplished not only in us, but in those you've entrusted to us in the lives of our children. And so Lord, we do want to be used as your agents to reach the heart of these dear children. I ask you, Lord, to help us to have the resolve, to have the intense desire to do the reading, to engage in the discipline, to ask others who have trod this road before us for their wisdom to be imparted, as we engage in all of this, we know that our hard work still won't produce it. Only your spirit can produce it in the hearts of these children. But you have chosen to do it through our cooperation. So use our glad and intense cooperation to save our children and to sanctify our children and to mold them and us into the image of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.